0: Like it or not, the senior and elderly population is vulnerable to negligence committed by medical professionals, nursing home and assisted living facilities, pharmaceutical and medical device companies, insurance companies, and everyday individuals and businesses. The Injured Senior Podcast is here to help. Steve Heisler is the creator of the National Injured Senior Law Center and has been advocating for seniors' rights for over 20 years. You have questions and Steve Heisler has answers. This is the Injured Senior Podcast.
1: Hello, Injured Senior Community. Welcome to the Injured Senior Podcast. I am Steven Heisler, founder and CEO of the National Injured Senior Law Center, coming to you from the basement of my house in Raven Crazy, Baltimore, Maryland. And the Ravens are my football team. So, City of Baltimore is crazy about our first game which happens uh, in a couple days so hopefully you are just as excited about your football team in whatever city or state you are listening to this podcast from so yes this is the injured senior podcast and the injured senior podcast is a weekly show where we discuss issues of vital importance to our injured senior and elderly community as well as to the children and loved ones of injured senior and elderly individuals. We also make it a top priority to educate the aging population on how not to become an injured senior or elder. I am your humble host, and I am so glad to be with you today. You are very important to me, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else at this time. I wanna thank the National Injured Senior Law Center for its kind sponsorship of this podcast. There are a hundred million or so people in the United States over the age of 50. The National Injured Senior Law Center are the legal advocates for the aging population in the United States. Now, some upcoming shows that I want you to know about, and I am very excited to tell you about these upcoming shows. Next week, we have Dr. Joseph Casciani on the podcast. He is a gyro psychologist, and "gero" is for gerontology, and founder of the Living to 100 Club. He is an expert on aging with a positive mindset, no matter how hard the journey. He also has a national weekly radio show on aging and longevity, the Living to 100 Club show, which, by the way, I will be appearing on today, actually. So this will be a fun show. We also have Laura Williams, a podiatrist from the UK and a sepsis survivor, who will be on the podcast in a few weeks. Laura recently started the Sepsis Survivor Stories podcast and will be here to tell her own sepsis survival story but also the stories of other seniors who have survived sepsis. You do not want to miss this show, and uh, I highly recommend that you tune in. Okay, let's get to today's show. This is a particularly sensitive show because we're going to talk about clergy sex abuse, especially in the Catholic Church, which has left a wake of destruction in its path and we have father tom doyle a truly heroic advocate for transparency and accountability in the catholic church in all churches in synagogues and mosques and he's going to be here in a couple minutes to discuss this so according to bishopaccountability.org who did an analysis of us conference of catholic bishops data there are more than 19000 people who endured abuse by American priests from 1950 to July 2017. And those are just the ones that can be confirmed and that we know about. For more than 30 years, Father Doyle has examined approximately 1,000 clergy sex abuse cases across the globe and is an expert witness and consultant to victims of clergy sex abuse. He served as a pastor in Illinois beginning in 1971, was appointed as an advocate for the Metropolitan Tribunal of the Archdiocese in Chicago in 1974. He served as secretary canonist at the Vatican Embassy in Washington, D.C. until 1986. In 1986, he was also commissioned a reserve officer in the U.S. Air Force, and was on active duty until 2004. He has received numerous and I mean numerous awards for his tireless advocacy on behalf of victims and survivors of clergy sex abuse, too many for me to name here. He also wrote a groundbreaking 90-page report in 1985 titled The Problem of Sexual Molestation by Roman Catholic Clergy and he published a book in 2006, Sex, Priests, and the Secret Codes. Welcome to the show, Father Doyle. I understand you would like me to call you Tom. So welcome to the show, Tom. We are so honored to have you here today. So thank you for coming on the show. Now, you became a pastor in 1971. When, when did you first become aware that uh, sex abuse being perpetrated on children in the church was going on. When when did that uh,
2: first kind of come onto your uh, radar screen? Well, it's an interesting history. First off, I was I was an assistant pastor, okay. uh, not a pastor. Uh, I, I was ordained in 1970, and my first actual assignment was in a parish, so I was a parish priest. But I knew that that sexual abuse of children existed, and I. Uh, was a member of the Dominican Order, and I entered after college. So I didn't go into a minor seminary at 14 years old. So there was, wasn't much of a chance to brainwash me going through the seminary, because I missed that whole, that whole deal. So I, I, I knew that there was an issue of priests becoming sexually involved with minors and children. Uh, I, I, I don't remember when I first learned about it. Uh, I, I do recall Uh, High school I went to, uh, when my family lived in upstate New York, the principal was a priest. And now I graduated from high school in 1962. The principal was a priest. And I remember finding out, we all did, that he had taken off, left, run away with one of the senior girls. And they attempted, they apparently had been carrying on and had an attempted marriage. The marriage uh, ended... I don't know when, but that's the first time that it was, it came close to home. And of course, everybody at the time was totally stunned because in the sixties, much more so than now, priests were held on a. I mean, you were way up on the ladder and the ladder was about a 25 story (laughs) ladder. So we were, everybody was stunned. So that was the first face to face, but I still recall vividly Hearing stories when I was in the Dominican Order about this happening, about a couple—this was as I when I was a seminarian before I was ordained—that there were a couple of priests in the order that the euphemism was they had a problem with altar boys. Well, now that, that that's a euphemism, it's a code word for sexually abusing kids. But I recall vividly one night—I think I might have been a deacon, which was the year before ordination of the priesthood. The superior of our community, the seminary community in Iowa, called a meeting of the entire community and uh, he announced to the community that a, a brother and a brother is a member of religious order who's not ordained so it's like a male nun to put it bluntly that a brother uh, had been accused credibly and those are the words I'm using I can't remember what he said of becoming involved with a Twelve or 13-year-old child, and that he, uh, the order, the, the superiors had immediately removed him and sent him to a therapeutic community in New Mexico run by a religious order called the Paraclete Order. So that, you know, that was, what I remember about that was the openness of the superior and the honesty of the superior, sharing this with the entire community and asking us you know, don't condemn this man, pray for him. It's a problem. It's not a not a moral fault, but it's a psychological problem, which was
1: true. It sounds like a, a rarity, because as you have pointed out in your book and in and, and, uh, reports that uh, the, and in where you've been interviewed in the past, that the Catholic Church has done everything in their power to conceal this from the public, but also to not apologize to victims or not to acknowledge it and basically not be accountable or transparent. Is that
2: that accurate? Oh, that's very accurate. That's been the default for centuries, not just now. I mean, you know, our lens looking at this issue is a very narrow lens. It just focuses on our our era. It came to the surface in 1964, uh, 1984 with a case in Louisiana, as you know, then that broke the lid off the um, very thick cover of secrecy. Then we began to understand that this wasn't wasn't like going on all the time everywhere, but it was far more extensive than any of us imagined. And now I learned over the years that my mind has never been able to wrap itself totally around the full extent of this issue, because every time I think I have, And I probably have been involved in this in more ways than anybody else on the planet, because I have in every degree, you know, with perpetrators, civil court, criminal court, throughout the world, and so on. This, the default approach from the Catholic Church has been as you have described it. Secrecy, protect the image of the Church, denial as much as you possibly can, disappear, so to speak, the perpetrator. And hands off the victims. One of the things that has uh, seriously scandalized me for, for decades. I've been, I've been involved in this now for 34 years, 36 years. Well, what's 2020, you subtract 1984 from 2020 and you come up with, what, 36? Some, something like that. You know, I, mathematics was never my, uh, my strong area. Mine, yeah. Me, was, I never, <laughs> but it's, been, it's, it's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time. But one of the things that has truly scandalized me and made me furious with the institutional Catholic Church is they've systemically not only ignored the victims over the years, but they have demonized them and, in some instances, publicly blamed them. So adding insult to injury. Adding insult to injury. They've ignored them and they've only in the past few years after the Boston debacle in 2002, that's when things started to significantly change, not because the bishops or their minions were, were changing their attitudes. They have not changed their attitudes, but because they were being forced to change by the media and by the attorneys. The, the entrance of this issue into the civil courts of our country has been the single most effective means of keeping this, blowing this out of the, the realm of secrecy and forcing accountability and allowing us to find out what's going on. So you
1: think that otherwise, if, if not for the media and not for trial attorneys filing suit against the archdioceses of, uh, almost just, just about every city or.
2: Well, not just about every diocese. Yeah.
1: yeah. It would basically still be, you know, just, uh, same old, same old,
2: correct? I believe it would be. I think had the media the media favored the Catholic churches, you know they were in our country at least they were very deferential toward the church for the longest time, but in 1984 that changed, and it changed, I think primarily because a very brave journalist, uh, investigative journalist named Jason Barry, wrote a series in Louisiana about not so much the sexual abuse of this priest that was the. The first big case, but the cover up. Jason is still involved. Uh, He and I are very close friends. He's written books about this. He probably he. There's only three of us still around that have been around for the duration: Jason, myself, and the attorney Jeffrey Anderson, who basically picked up his first case in 1983. But the default has been it's been secrecy. So can you tell our listeners about? Uh, the
1: case that you, you got involved in in louisiana because that was really like when you like you said like you started getting active and uh, advocating on behalf
2: of sexual abuse
1: victims what what was that about
2: well i was working at the vatican embassy at the time in washington dc and the way we operated there we had a meeting every morning called a congresso which was like a little staff meeting and the boss the nuncio who was an archbishop would come in with a stack of papers, usually the mail for the day. And whatever had to be dealt with, he'd pass it out to various members of the staff and say, take care of this, take care of that. Well, I got a letter given to me from the Diocese of Lafayette, Louisiana. And the letter, it was signed by the vicar general, who's second in command of the bishop, that they had settled, confidentially settled, uh, with I think six families complaints that a priest had sexually violated their children, nine kids and six, six families, and they had settled. And they had given them each, I forget the number, but it was six figures. And the family signed a confidentiality agreement, not to talk about this to anybody. So this is all taken care of, Your Excellency. Don't worry about a thing it's under control. So I got the letter. I read the letter. And believe me, I was, uh, I said, this is really bizarre. I've seen some weird stuff since I've been here. But this is one of the worst. My boss said, prepare a response, make a file. Yes, sir. The next day or the day after, I don't remember which, we get another letter. Vicar General, the same bishop, saying, I'm sorry, but there's been a significant change. One of the families uh, that had entered into the agreement pulled out, and they have uh, uh, obtained an attorney. Who was filing a lawsuit against the diocese. And so he informed us of this. So, this family was certainly very brave. They're in Cajun, Louisiana, where everybody's Catholic. And they had the courage to pull out of this, this agreement and step forward and speak out. Now, this was in an era when this was not done. And there had been no
1: sex abuse litigation really before this, correct? No, there was none. Okay. So the church was just settling these claims uh, with the families on their terms, on the church's terms, and having obviously more leverage, you know, either take it or leave it,
2: right? Kind of like that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh and we, of course, at the time had no way of knowing how much of this was going on because no bishop was they weren't reporting in and saying, well, this year. Uh, I've settled uh, 10 claims for sexual abuse, and uh, the next year, you know, and so on. They weren't reporting that in, and the only way you found out was by accident. Now, I'm working at the papal nunciature, the Pope's embassy in the U.S. of A. We did not know how widespread this was, and we never really found out. It was a gradual issue. Over the years, we've learned through discovery primarily and depositions that the bishops knew about this from the from year zero. So get to back getting back here. So this couple had got an attorney, and this attorney filed a lawsuit, a, a civil lawsuit in, in uh, Lafayette on behalf of their his client. And he named in the suit his defendants the priest whose name was Gilbert Gote, the bishop of the diocese whose name was Jared Fry, the vicar general whose name was Henri Larocque the Papal Nuncio, whose name at the time was Archbishop Pio Laghi, and the Pope, who was John Paul II. So everybody that the the families signed off and released from any liability was named in the suit. Once that happened, the district attorney down there, a guy named uh, Nathan Stansbury, realized that these cases were all within statute. So he had to file criminal charges. The criminal charges were filed. The media got involved. Jason Berry, as I said, wrote a four part series that was published in an area newspaper in spite of threats to the editor and the publisher of loss of uh, advertising income if they published these. The good Catholics didn't want this to happen, Uh, but they did. And so they were published. And that changed the direction of the media attention. That case got international publicity, and I still got a box of newspaper clippings from that era. What happened then, after that, I developed a contact with an attorney down there who, oddly enough, was representing the priest on the criminal charges. His name was um, Ray Mouton. And Ray uh, came up to see me, wanted to see me. Uh, He said, you're the the Pope's man. I want to talk to you. And another priest was involved named Michael Peterson, who was a Washington, D.C. priest who was also a psychiatrist. Michael is deceased. He died in 1987. But I put him together with the diocese so that Michael could get involved with this priest, the therapy, finding out what was going on, because the diocese didn't know how to handle it. They thought they did, but they were doing everything wrong that could be done wrong. So there are three of us now. Are taking this seriously. We, we, we sat down, and when Mouton came up here to my office and sat down and talked to me, he said, I wanted to talk to you and I want to tell you what's really going on down there. He said, This guy is only one. The bishop knows of about eight or nine other priests that are still out there doing this to kids. So I'm saying, Oh, really? Yes. And he said, They're they're still out there. And he said, now there's a there's a, a, a civil suit going on. And the attorney for this family is one of the toughest ones around. And he is going to get discovery. And all of this is going to come out. Now, I said, he said to me, he said, I'm a father. I've got three teenage, two teenage boys and a preteen girl. And I'm worried about them. You know, I'm worried about what's going to happen to them, if they're going to have, encounter some priest. And Ray also was a man of principle, definitely a lawyer. He's an extremely good lawyer but definitely a man of principle. He became a a linchpin, a key player in what we did then, which was essentially with this report, pry the lid off the the barrel of secrecy without even knowing what we were doing. We had no idea how how, how much the bishops knew and how, how much secrecy was involved in this. And in time, as we began, we wrote this report as a free will gesture, so to speak, and I, my boss, the Archbishop. What report are you referring to now? The the one you mentioned earlier. The hundred page, page report. Yeah, hundred page report. What that was? Nobody asked us to do that. I was very interested in this problem because I was dealing with it firsthand, and I'm getting reports regularly by phone from Louisiana, descriptions of the psychological. Uh, profiles of the victims that were being, these are kids, little boys, uh, who were being now finally coming forward and being examined and checked out. And what I'm learning from these reports was nauseating what this guy did to these kids. Then I find out that there's, there's eight or nine other priests, at least in the diocese, roaming around that the bishop is doing nothing about. In the meantime, this hit the newspapers. And then we start getting phone calls from the Diocese of Providence, Rhode Island, where they got some other problems up there, similar in nature. So we got these two dioceses, and the reports started coming in, and very quickly. So by the beginning of 1985, we saw this as the, the, the tip of an iceberg, the three of us. And you were working in the Vatican embassy at the time, yeah. right? That's right. Okay. I didn't leave there until 86. Right.
1: But because you became much more active in pursuing what was going on, did you get any pushback at all from uh,
2: you know from the archdiocese? Or? oh yeah, sure I did a lot of pushback. I remember when several things happened because I wouldn't let it go and I thought I was doing the thing the right thing by the church. and I thought this is what the bishops were want. and I was talking to other bishops because this was publicly known. so other bishops that I saw that were regularly coming there I was asking for their advice. What should we do? And finally, I told him, you know, we're writing this report. And I remember uh, one bishop who became a cardinal, and oddly enough, it was Bevilacqua from Philadelphia, who was a close friend of mine at the time. Mm -hmm. He said, that report's necessary. He said, the the way you want to lay it out is question and answer so that the bishops will read it. They have nothing to go on right now, nothing. Okay, so we wrote the report. My boss, the Archbishop, was supportive of this, of what we were doing. He was in he couldn't wrap his mind around this whole thing because he'd been in the Papal Diplomatic Corps since he was two years ordained. So he was, un, he, he didn't, he was in, in la-la land. I mean, he was living in another world. So things rolled along. We finished the report, and basically it said it was divided up into sections, civil law, canon law, pastoral, psychological plus a bunch of recommendations where A, take care of the victim, B, pull the priest offline, you know, and report this and, and be open with the media, be honest and open with the media. That's what the report said. But it was, you know, there was a lot of other stuff in it, everything of which they never did and none of which they did because of the report. Because my boss, the nuncio, on our behalf, tried to submit this to the Bishop's Conference of the United States for consideration. They rejected it. And they stated publicly at a couple of news conferences that they didn't need it because they knew everything that was in it. This is 1985. They knew everything that was in the report. Everything was under control. And then they turned around and they accused, and the accusation came through their office of uh, attorney, their um, civil attorney, general counsel. They accused Peterson, Mouton, and I of creating this issue to benefit from it financially, to sell our services to the various bishops, which was a complete and total lie. And it was, I was stunned. And that's when I began to realize something's going on here that I don't know about. And what it was, was the beginning of our realization of a conspiracy to try to control this issue, which obviously they couldn't.
1: Do you think that it, you could trace it all the way up to, uh, to the Pope?
2: Sure. I'm not sure when they were first informed of what was going on in Louisiana, because a lot of the exchange of information went on between my boss, Nuncio, and the Holy See by phone. However, at one point in January, I suggested that we find a bishop that we can trust and get him, send him down to Louisiana to see exactly what's going on, because it's a mess. And by mess, I mean there were all these forces trying to cover up for the bishop and protect the bishop and prevent a trial from happening because they knew what was going to happen if there's a trial. It's all going to come out. And the the forces were important people. One of them was the the the, the husband of the uh, former governor of Louisiana, a guy named uh, Ray Blanco. And and the another one, oddly enough, was had been at one point Ted Kennedy's father-in-law, a judge named uh, Reggie Edmond Reggie, who was a a judge, a very prominent judge. And they were supporting, trying to help the bishop. So we got this going on, and I suggested this to my boss. And he said to me, write a report up that we can send to the Holy See, describing what this is all about, so that I have a way of justifying, asking them to let me appoint this bishop as a special envoy down there. I wrote a report. It was 42 pages long. I still remember it was 42 pages long it was detailed and it was explicit this is what these guys do this is what this priest does to these little boys anal sex you know daisy chains with the kids to connect photography and so on it was all right there so the deal we did the boss read the report signed a cover letter so it went under his signature to the holy See. it was addressed to the pope He knew that this had to go directly to the Pope as quickly as possible. He had to cut through all the the layers of bureaucratic and, and, um, you know, the aristocratic nonsense that went on in the papal court. So we arranged to have that report hand-delivered to Cardinal Kroll, who was the Archbishop of Philadelphia at the time, on a Sunday night. He was flying to Rome the next morning. And he told me, because I arranged this with him by phone, I will personally hand that to the Pope and ask him to read it and tell him this is urgent. He and the Pope were close friends. They were both Polish. I mean, big-time Polish. And they spoke Polish to each other and so on. So, you get up there. At the end of the week, Kroll comes back and he said, uh, no, not!" it was before the end of the week. He called Annuncio from Rome to say that I've done my part. I gave the Holy Father the report and he said he would read it. By Thursday, we knew he had read it because we received a cable from the Holy See allowing us to appoint this bishop as a special investigator. So the Pope in, I believe it was March 1985, had read a very detailed, explicit report on sexual abuse of children by clergy. So all the nonsense that they had projected about him not knowing anything about it you know, when they were making him a saint. And the two ringleaders were his mouthpieces, his press secretary over there, who was a Spanish psychiatrist and a fairly prominent so-called theologian in the United States named George Weigel, who wrote a, a bi- biography of the Pope, claiming that he never knew anything about this because he just didn't, and because he couldn't believe it because he was so pure. Well, that was all total nonsense. So he knew by then. In June of that same year, a uh, cardinal named Odi O D D I came over to the, uh, the embassy, and he was the head of the Congregation for the Clergy, the whole department in the Vatican that handles clergy. He wanted to know about this stuff. My boss, Cardinal Loggi, said Archbishop Loggi said to me, "Prepare a paper, brief him." I went to his office. I sat down. We were there three hours, and I gave him what we knew by June, which was a lot more than what we knew in, uh, in, in, in January, in detail. Gave him the paper, I read it to him, and then gave it to him, and he said, I will take this back, I will give it to the Holy Father, we will have a meeting of the heads of all the, the congregations in Rome, all the major offices, and we will issue a decree. Well, I said, okay, fine, knowing already that you could issue all the decrees you want it's not going to do a damn bit of good right so the vatican knew okay by, by then they had a clear cut picture of what was going on over here
1: and do you think it was it's any coincidence that a year or two later you were fired from your job as uh, working uh, at the vatican
2: i don't think it was a coincidence at all but the the way they they do the way they do business is you never really know straight up what's going on So I was never really told, you're fired because you've been pushing this issue too hard. But I remember my boss told me one day, he said, if you stay with this, it's going to ruin your career in the church if you keep pushing this issue. Well, I made a decision then and there. I don't care about a career in the church. I'm too much committed to this. So I was told that we have a new man coming in, and we need your office space uh, for him. No, that's a nice way of saying you are going out the back door and you're not coming back. Here. Yeah,
1: they couldn't find you another office. So they, you couldn't they, find they, me another office. Right, right,
2: right. So that was the end of my career. My, <laughs> uh, that was the end the, And uh, believe me, I shed no tears when I left. Well, one door
1: closes, another door opens. Right. That's what they say. Okay. So, so whatever happened with the Louisiana case? How did How did that get? How did that get uh,
2: resolved? Well, the, the 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 couple that brought the lawsuit. That went to trial, and their son, who was 10, 11 years old at the time, was a very, very brave boy because this was the first time this went on. And he's faced with a, with a tank of sharks you know, that were trying to de- defend the bishop, but fortunately he had a really smart lawyer. So they testified. They won. They received a million-some dollars in, in, a, in a, an award for him. The priest, Gauté, went, was he never went to trial. They settled before a trial. He got 20 years uh, in prison, but he actually only served 10. He was supposed to serve 20, but he actually only served 10 because an attorney, a, law, a judge down there who knew the family got involved, and somehow or other, they finagled it, so he got out after 10 years. His case, he never functioned as a priest again, that's for sure. And he could never go back to Louisiana because he'd be a dead man because he had he sexually abused hundreds of kids. And, you know, these, these Cajun fathers, you know, they don't, nobody's going to mess with their families. They don't, they don't mess I'm, around. Yeah, No. Yeah. I'm surprised that, that more priests weren't actually killed. And I don't blame them. So none were, as a matter of fact. Some were threatened, but none were. So right. Gilbert now lives in a small town in East Texas by himself. I understand he has two kinds of cancer. I don't know how bad it is. He's been very. He's been back in prison a couple of times since that. Uh, once for uh, violating his parole. He did sexually abuse a neighbor's child after he got out. It was three years old, but she didn't want to prosecute because she didn't want to, have to go and stand. But he ended up. He moved his. He was living in a trailer, and he he, he parked his trailer near a playground, so he went back to jail. So then, after I don't know how many years, he got out, and he's living in this uh, house apparently, but it's hard to find it because it's surrounded by bushes and weeds and everything else. That's the Louisiana case. So a lot's happened since then.
1: Can you tell our injured senior community a little bit about what you've been doing since uh, you left the Vatican embassy in, in 1986? And When I say what you've been doing, just basically how you then, not so much uncovered, but all of a sudden, kind of like the vault opened and all, there was all these sex abuse cases that were now coming to the surface. And I think you said earlier that it's because of the media and the trial lawyers. But right, right after 1986, what, what did you do to advance the cause of trying to really show this or get this exposed to the public?
2: Okay, after 1986, this manual that we referred to, the press got a hold of it. So it became publicly known, which meant my name, Mutan's name, and Michael Peterson's name, we were out there. The three of us started getting requests from bishops to go to their dioceses and put on seminars for the priests, mandatory seminars about this issue. We had a number of them around the country that we and also religious orders, not all of them, but a significant what we thought was a significant number. Grand total maybe maybe 15, 20 altogether. Uh, So we were doing that. And that was, some of these bishops honestly wanted to do the right thing. But one bishop said to me, my problem, he said, the conference itself, the leadership of the bishops' conference isn't helping. You know, they're stonewalling on this, which is where the problem was. They are the ones that wanted to control it, stonewall it, and create the conspiracy. And they did. And And they won out. I mean, that's what's... They won, yeah. They won at the time, or they thought they won. Well, now, I mean, how can you say they won? It's cost the church in this country probably five and a half billion dollars. But this is the same outfit that said, and in 1984, 85, we've got this under control. We know everything about it. We know how to handle it. We don't need this manual. We don't need Doyle or Mouton or Peterson to tell us about what we're doing. Yeah, but they're still it, concealing and lying as of as of today, right? I mean, it, it, well, yeah, it's still going on until it's forced. But you know the. They're on the defensive. They've been on the defensive all along, but they're still even more so now on the defensive end in free fall because although they're, they're trying to manipulate things, those days are gone. Right. Because the victims and their attorneys and their supporters are driving this bus. We are the ones that are handling this thing, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, if that can be believed. I, I think 12 states are being investigated by state attorneys general. The diocese is in 12 states. What happened in Pennsylvania was earth-shattering. That blew a lot of minds. And for our listeners that
1: don't know about that, can you just briefly talk about that?
2: Briefly, the uh, attorney general of the state of Pennsylvania, a very fine man named Josh Shapiro, I believe it was not, 2017, 16 or 17, sat a grand jury and proceeded with a grand jury investigation of every Catholic diocese in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, with the exception of the diocese of Philadelphia, and Philadelphia had already been subjected to three grand juries, uh, local, uh, that were uh, that were uh, prompted by the not the attorney general of Philadelphia, the district attorney of Philadelphia, a very fine woman named Lynn Abraham, and those those reports were unbelievable. Then the, they investigated the Diocese of Altoona-Johnstown and, of course, discovered that was a rat's nest. That was a state grand jury, and then he decided to do the whole state, which they did. And in July, I believe, of 2018, they published their report, which was mind-bending. Uh, and uh, that, that, of course, got a lot of other attorneys general moved on this, and so they began doing the same thing. With, with with benefits. So that's that's been going on. Now, that's un, unheard of in history, where you have, first, a country like the U.S., where church and state are separated, and you've got the civil authorities realizing and, and finally treating the Catholic Church, not with all this deference, but this is criminal behavior. And if don't matter what you are, if you're a bishop, a cardinal, or a pope, if you commit crim- a crime, you're a criminal. And that's how it's going.
1: And I think that the uh, report stated that there were like 300 priests that uh, had engaged in, in this type of activity is that
2: is that accurate well that yeah that was an understatement because they said they could only report that many at that time they were they wanted to get the report done but they hadn't verified about another 300 and so okay so you're probably talking 700 Wow and
1: and this is going on now you said in 12 other states
2: I believe it's 12 I'm involved in, in the District of Columbia as a consultant, D.C., Virginia, New York, Texas, New Mexico, California. I was, I've been consulted by, by New Jersey, but I don't know if they've done anything yet. Okay. I've gotten calls from several others, but those are where I'm lined up, and I've met with them, and there's continued process going on. Right. The most impressive one that for me is New York. they got a very aggressive guy in New York.
1: So, you you mentioned New York. So, not only are we seeing much more aggressive activity from the Attorney General's office and all these other states, but there's also more attention being paid to it in the legislature. Yes. And we talked about it off off air, and I I want to talk about it now. But actually, I think in 2019, New Jersey and New York basically extended the statute of limitations to age 55. uh, And then also, allowed potential victims at any age give them they gave they gave them one or two years to make a claim even if you're over the age of 55 so at any age is that is that correct
2: that's that they open the window right can that you- anybody no matter who you are how old you are or when it took place you can go to court now let me just say that the supporters of sexual of the of, of, of the victims the support so the biggest support group for victims is SNAP. It's called SNAP, uh, Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, which is now worldwide. And we have been fighting this issue for over 10 years to get the statutes of limitations changed in, in various states. And it's been a, an uphill battle. New York State was the tightest one of the, of the entire union, I think. And we were getting absolutely nowhere in New York State until the legislature changed. Now, the only opposition, well, I shouldn't say the only. The opposition to any change has been, to some extent, the insurance industry, because they know it's gonna cost them more money. The Boy Scouts were fighting it in a couple of states, but the consistent, most strong and powerful opposition has been the bishops of each Catholic, the, the Catholic bishops in each state. Oh, what a surprise. Yeah, what a surprise, they have spent upwards of 10 to 20 million dollars to fight it with lobbyists and so on and this has gone on and they've done a lot of under the table stuff uh, a lot of threats a lot of a lot of silly promises and nonsense and a lot of lies and so politicians are looking for votes we got the support of the governor of new york thank god and that made a difference. So it went through New York. New York's a big state. In New York now, they've got cases coming out all over the place. And a lot of the people coming forward throughout this country now are what you would call, what I would call, senior citizens. Now, chrono- chronologically, I'm a senior citizen. I don't think of myself. I think I'm still, you know, waiting to get out of my teenage years. But You don't um, look a day over 25. Uh, I know, I know. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> But most of a lot of these people are senior citizens. They're adults, they're older, more mature adults, let's put it that way, who were sexually abused in their youth, either as very young teenagers or as middle teenagers, and never brought it out, never reported it. And so, uh, and they never reported it oftentimes because of fear, because of guilt because they believed they would not be believed. And in many instances, they were right. They wouldn't be, because the time was not ripe. If you reported this in 1955, if you, your parents were extraordinary, they'd believe it. But ordinarily, nobody would believe it. You, you couldn't wrap your mind around that. So statistically, only I believe it is 37% of males and females who are sexually abused as minors ever report, ever. Hired probably in the Catholic Church. So there could be some people listening to the show today
1: in the injured senior community who might have unfortunately been molested by a, by a priest or a pastor. What would be your advice to someone who is, again, a senior citizen, part of the aging population, who now wants to move
2: forward and take action? What, what would be your advice? my advice would be first find out you know where you are you willing and ready to come forward because we who are supporting victims are ready for you i'd say my first bit of advice would be to contact this organization called snap as a start because you'll get you'll get peer assistance people who will help you who are probably in many cases your own age or in your own age group, age bracket. Is it like a support network or, or what, what do they do? They, it's a support network it has been in existence since 1988. They do, they do a lot of lobbying. They do a lot of support. They've got local groups all over the place where you can go and talk and tell your story. If you don't want to go to a group, you can tell your story to one of the people who work for SNAP or they can recommend somebody that, you, that will listen to you. That's the first part. Telling the story, getting it out there. Because no matter what the church or anybody else says, that these problems go away with age, that's a complete farce. They don't. They get worse. If you're violated sexually as a kid, those scars stay raw. And they can refer you to like a mental health counselor, or do they have, uh, or is it just. uh... They can refer you there. I, I would not recommend that a person go to just any mental health. Facility or pro- professional, but somebody that really knows how to deal with, with adults who've been sexually abused as children. Okay. Because these people oftentimes suffer terrible PTSD, you know, the, the guilt feelings, all kinds of things. Many of them, it has affected their entire life. And it can be just as traumatic,
1: and they could suffer just as much 30 or 40 years later than they might have 30 or 40 days after uh, the uh, molestation?
2: Well, from what I've seen, and I'm not a psychologist, but I've seen enough of this. It gets worse. The oldest victim I ever talked to came out, so to speak, at the age of 91. Wow. And I've talked to several other people. I I don't know how many over the years where it was people in their seventies, let's say late sixties or seventies, which I used to consider old, but I don't anymore came to me one way or the other, because I was, I mean, I've been around, I've been on TV, I've been in documentaries and all this sort of thing. So they would approach me like they'd approached, they've approached a lot of other people and wanted to talk and told me their story. And finally, and it was, it was extremely traumatic to, to verbalize to someone else that what happened to them. People don't want to talk about that. And, and I, you know, my policy has been, and one of the reasons I've stayed in this, because believe me, it's like getting up every morning and going to work in a cesspool. That's what you're dealing with, you know, with a, with an outfit that continues to lie and manipulate and 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 your disregard and and all that the the victims. But the the senior citizens, the older people, the more mature Americans, let's say, many of them have suffered far worse than if they came forward. Two months later or three months after because they had to, yeah you know, it was the
1: weight on their shoulders they had to keep it to themselves and keep yeah, it inside keep it to themselves.
2: yeah and you know and i know when you have a secret that's painful and you keep it or resentment it just gets worse right know, over the, over time and you it, it amplifies it builds up i'm not afraid or ashamed to say that i've been in alcoholics anonymous for going on 29 years congratulations and that uh Thank you. That experience, being living the twelve steps, and I'm still active at AA, has been one of the most important things for me to keep me balanced and sane. It's given me a source of spirituality, and in many ways, it's given me some credibility with the victims because because I was an active priest, and the priest was a, was an abuser. I mean, this is a contradiction in terms for them to find out that there's a priest. Was trying to help us. We don't trust priests. Right. And I've, I've met, on the part of victims, incredible hostility. Sure. Which I understand. And,
1: and there's something I read in the New York Times about you that I wanted to get to before we uh, we are, are done because uh, we are running short. But what would be some other? I know one one thing would be to contact SNAP. Are there any other uh, bits of advice you could give to someone who uh, is looking to um, maybe come out and and you know just Talk about or take action as to what happened to them.
2: Yeah, I, I think. Well, one thing—if they want— one thing that has been very effective and 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 therapeutic for a lot of them is simply going to an attorney who will listen to them, because the attorneys over this, over the decades have done for the victims what the priests should have done: listened to them, believed them, supported them, gave them comfort. That's that's true. Whether they've been agnostics. Catholics, Jews, doesn't matter. But I've seen the attorneys over the years provide this kind of, of of support and guidance for victims. If that's what they, if that would help, do it. If They want to call me, call me. I don't care. That's what I'm here for. Great, great,
1: Father Tom. By the way, and yes, I read something in New York Times uh, that said that uh, during, I think the the trial in Louisiana, the attorney was looking for you, and you were meeting with some, uh, uh, some people, and I think some of them had, uh, had also been victims of, of, of clergy sex abuse, and you were apologizing to them.
2: That, that was the, Yeah, that's true. But that, that was not Louisiana. That was a big trial that took place in Dallas, Texas okay. in 1997. And there were, there were 10 young men that were the plaintiffs, all in their 20s, late 20s, and one set of parents whose son had committed suicide. The perpetrating priest's name was Rudy Koss. He's now in prison. But when we take a break, I felt that, you know, I'd not met these people yet. I was an expert witness in the case. I knew all about it because I'd read everything, written a report. But I tried to get with each family during the breaks and talk to them and apologize to them. And and what I said was, look, I'm I'm a priest. Look, I got the thing on. I got the the collar on. I said, I am deeply sorry for what we have done to you. And and I've said that, I've done that throughout my career. I can't tell you how many times. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. What's more remarkable, not once has somebody said to me, well, the bishop already apologized. But then the lawyer, the lawyer in that particular case, she told me later on, she says, I was getting really angry with you because I could never find you during the breaks. And then I realized you're doing what you're supposed to do. Right. Right. And I said, well, that's the way it is. It
1: was... Father Tom, this has been an incredible episode. I really, from the bottom of my heart, really deeply appreciate you coming on and talking about this. We're going to have to have you back just to get updates about what's happening because as you said, things are rapidly changing and getting better in the uh, whole clergy sex abuse uh, litigation and, 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 and the like. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you, would they be able to email you or do you have any social media? Probably
2: email would be the best way because I get that before I get a phone call. Okay. And then I would give them the phone number and then we, I'd find, what I want to, what I try to do is find out what's good for them, what's going to work. Some people don't want to meet face to face. Some don't even want to talk on the phone. They want to do it by email. I don't care, whatever. As long as we can start the process of healing. Okay. That's
1: awesome. And what is that email address?
2: D-O-Y-L-E, my last name, 8344, which is my date of birth, at Gmail. Happy belated birthday. I don't have birthdays anymore. <laughs> I have a middle sister who's got a new way of figuring our ages out, and she's, uh, she's, she's brilliant. So she's five years younger than I am. and We figured out that this year I was 42, and she said that she's 41. So she says, she said, it's getting scary because I'm almost younger than my oldest daughter. <laughs> but yeah. It's, <coughs> anyway. how,
1: yeah, it's funny how, you know, we, we uh, yeah, as we get older, we, we just want to get, you know, we want to get younger and younger. So, but that's the cycle of life. The cycle.
2: You're right. I don't, I'm not ready to grow up yet.
1: That's I, okay. That's good. Stay young. Stay young up between the years. Great. Father Doyle, again, we will Look to have you come back. I want to thank you again for coming on and just keep fighting the good fight. You've you've definitely done some just incredible work over the past thirty to forty
2: years. I'm in it for life. I'll just say that. I can't back out now. That's and great. the reason I can't is because I know the victims yeah. and their families. Got it.
1: Injured in senior community, if you have any questions about today's show or potential case that you might want to talk to me about, feel free to email me at steve at injured senior hotline.com. Also, feel free to email me about any topics that you'd like me to cover on the show. If you'd like to audition to be a guest on the Injured Senior Podcast to talk about uh, your experience as an injured senior, whatever the injury is or whatever the condition or disease, you, you definitely will have some very welcome ears, people that will want to hear about it on the show. So uh, again, you can email me at steve at hotline dot com. If you'd like to take a look at the show notes, if you like the content from today's great episode with uh, Father Tom Doyle, just go over to our show notes and uh, you'll get a summary of what Father Tom said today. And we will be sure to put any links that are applicable to today's show in the show notes. Please also subscribe to this podcast. If you are not a subscriber already, you can find us on just about every platform, including Apple and Spotify. And uh, if you do subscribe and you like what you hear, please rate and review us. We would definitely appreciate that. So thanks again for listening to today's show. Be sure to tune in to next week's show, and I will talk to you next week. Thank you, everybody. Have a good one.
0: Thanks for listening to the Injured Senior Podcast with Steve H. Heisler. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more or to get help anytime, go to InjuredSeniorHotline.com or call eight five five. 622-6530. We'll see you next time.